If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. I got it in me, 40 minutes, no problem. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Title of our message is Mark chapter 3. <laughs> they always ask me, what's the title? I said, Mark chapter 3, what do you mean? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time, Lord, and uh, just pray that we would desire, Father, to be a part of individuals' lives. We see the need that is represented all around us, Lord, and I pray that we can do a little part that we can be open and available to you. And Lord, we recognize that the greatest ability in the world is availability. And with that, Lord, just a surrendered heart to you. So bless your word, Father, as we have this time. We thank you and just ask your hand to be upon this. Eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. amen. So we're going through the gospel of Mark. We find ourselves in chapter 3. It has all of these different sections, so I'm going to comment little as we go through the sections. You can see them broken down. If you have a New King James Bible, verses 1 through 6, 7 through 12, so on and so forth. We'll go through them, and then I'm going to come back to the first section of this healing of the man with the withered hand, and then we'll wrap it up, tie it up there, and you'll see how we do that. So... Let's take a look at Mark's gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Just an interesting thing taking place. This would be Jesus' fifth encounter in the gospel of Mark with the religious leaders. These specifically, as we see from verse 6, are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were um, just out to get Jesus. He didn't meet or match their idea of what was supposed to be taking place. Um, How they missed it, I'm not exactly sure, but we can do that as well. So we want to be open always on a daily basis to the Lord and what he has for us. We don't want to come to a place where we think we've got things figured out to the extent where we give God the Heisman and we move on without him. The dependence upon God is something that we all need on a daily basis as believers. And so this group of individuals, these Pharisees are watching him. They want to accuse him, as it says in verse 2. Verse 3 says, And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. And so instead of backing down, instead of Jesus thinking, Well, these guys are out to get me, Jesus says, No, you know what? individual with the withered hand. And it's interesting as you see Jesus in the synagogue with the multitudes, he always found the individual who had the greatest need. And he would go up to that individual and he would minister to that greatest need. And so something of an encouragement for us to recognize that Jesus still recognizes when we have needs. And so he brings him front and center. He's not hiding or hiding with this man. Hey, after service, maybe we'll do something. Verse four, then he said to them... To those religious leaders who were watching him to accuse him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. 
And so Jesus is asking him, evil is taking place every day. Shouldn't it good be taking place every day? Isn't it always right to do something good? And so just the hardness of their hearts to come to that place where they wouldn't even answer him. And I think they're learning uh, we don't win when we answer Jesus. He always wins us, so we're not going to say anything. So this time, they say nothing. Verse 5 says, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. If you look at the original language, the Greek, as you study this chapter, you recognize that this man at one time had whole parts. His hands were all good when he was born. And something happened in his life to bring this paralysis. Something took place where this man lost the use of his hand. And so at this point, Jesus, seeing the need, understanding even in anger and grieved because of the hardness of the hearts of those who were trying to accuse him, catch him, doing something, Jesus just puts them aside and says, this man has a need and I'm going to address the need that is represented. Stretch out your hand. We're going to come back to that at the end of the study, but it almost looks, well, think about this. This man has a withered hand. This hand is no good. And, And isn't that crazy? Isn't that mean of Jesus to bring this guy front center and and to tell him to do something that he cannot do. And so we're going to come back to that because we're going to discover that God's commandments are God's enablements. If God is commanding us to do something, then God will give us the ability to do it. But somewhere faith has to come in contact with the command and the obedience. And when that takes place, we watch a miracle happen. Verse 6 goes on to say, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They want to destroy Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath. Not seeing, and this is religion. Religion does this all day. Religion always thinks that they've got it figured out. They always think that they're better than others. They always think that their system and their way of doing it is superior. And these religious leaders would miss the Messiah. And so we need to be very careful because the world is watching on and the world is in need. And by the nature of being a Christian, we find ourselves in a religious community, but we want to be anything but religious. We want to be humble in God's presence. We want to be simply looking to the Lord for everything that we do. Because In Revelation chapter 19, we saw religion is going to be judged. God is deposed, opposed to religion. And it's only through Christ that we find salvation. And God is looking more for a relationship than a religion. More that we would walk and talk with him on a daily and be a community of believers that would reach out to the needs that are represented around us. All over, right around us, there's incredible needs that are represented And we're so busy at times with our religiosity that we miss these opportunities. So again, we're going to come back to that. Let's move forward, verse 7 through verse 12. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon 
a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And so Jesus' popularity continues to grow, not with the religious leaders, but with the common people. And they're following him, pressing in against him to the extent that he has to tell his disciples, you know what, guys, why don't you guys have a boat on the ready for me so that if the multitudes are pressing, I can at least get in that boat, come just offshore, and then I can teach them the things that they need to know. But the crowds were just thickening. And interesting, he says he sternly warned these demonic spirits that they should not make him known. Jesus had a time. He was headed toward the cross, and there was a timeline on that. But with that, we don't want the press, the negative press of the demoniacs. Not only are they called unclean spirits, but in the Bible, they're also referred to as lying spirits. And so who wants the support or the accolades or the uh, advertisement of a lying spirit? Jesus didn't, and so he kept them from just uh, proclaiming him. Verses 13 through 19. And when he went on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. In Luke's gospel, we discover that Jesus spent all night before he would pr- uh, pray. Jesus spent all night praying before he would choose these 12 who would follow with him. Interesting, at this time as well, Jesus would say, look into the harvest. The harvest is ready. It's ripe. It's, it's there. There's fruit that is falling off the trees, but there's no laborers. There are no workers. There's nobody who wants to go into the harvest and do this incredible work of the ministry. And the way I see it is our lives as Christians are to be ministry. And so, yes, you have a ministry right under your roof, right in your house, with those people who you should be closest to. And there's ministry that should be taking place there. And then you have your workplace or your school, and there's an opportunity to minister there. You have friends and family, and there's an opportunity to, be ministry, to do ministry there. And so no matter where we go, whether we're formally doing something or whether we're just living life, If our lives are surrendered, which is the least reasonable thing we can do, according to Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, the least thing that we can do after all that he's done for us. And so Jesus tells these guys in Luke that the harvest is ripe. It's ready, but there's no laborers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest fields. And then we see Jesus send them out right after they pray that. And so as we pray, Lord, send send workers into the field, get ready. We want to be those who the Lord would send in to the field. Only one life soon will pass. Only what's done for Christ is going to last. And so we want to be busy about his business. We want to be used by the Lord as he does a work in us so that he can do a work through us. 
Going on in verse 14, he says, He appointed the twelve that they might be with him, verse 15, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So Jesus gave them authority and power. This word power is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's not the same power that we as his disciples would receive in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, go to Jerusalem and go to the upper room and wait until the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall receive power uh, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And all the world or whatever it is. Acts 1.8. If I misquoted it, you look it up. But Acts 1.8. Different power he's giving them. This power is to be able at will to cast out demons and to heal individuals. And so there are some in the body of Christ within Christianity believe that this is what's called apostolic succession. I'm here to say that nobody has this power. It's not for us to use at will. We have to be dependent upon God. And every once in a while, he will give an individual the ability to cast out demons or to lay hands on the sick and they will be raised. But nobody has this. The disciples had it. And it is very unique as you, as you look at, the, again, the, just the original language. Verse 17 goes on, or 16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Simon is shifting sand. Peter is little rock. So he changes his name. Uh, verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, uh, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, who is also called James the Less. We never hear anything about James the Less in the scriptures. Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into the house. And so right here we see the calling of the twelve. Again, as Jesus would pray all night, and you have been called. You have been called to come out from amongst them and be separate says the Lord, to be able to be used by the Lord with what he wants to do in this world as the body of Christ. Verse 20 through 27. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out and laid hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Interesting, his own people could be his close friends or his family members, Um, And we're going to see his family members in verse 31 through 35. They see what's taking place. They see that the people are angry and upset with him, or the religious leaders are, and they want to destroy him. And so they're like, I don't know, maybe our brother is cuckoo and, you know, just hit one too many times or something. We don't know what's going on. But they want to get him away, if you will. Verse 22 says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. These individuals were getting very close to committing the unpardonable sin. And we're going to see that in the next section. The unpardonable sin 
had a very unique application in the days that Jesus was on the earth. They are watching miracles take place and they are attributing to Jesus and these miracles the power of Satan. And Jesus is saying, be careful, you're coming close to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're coming very close to committing the unpardonable sin, the only sin that you will not be forgiven of. And so we're gonna, again, we're going to see that in the next section. This idea of binding Satan is done through prayer. And I remember I did a study on Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, where the angel with one hand grabs Satan and binds him and places him into the abyss where he is held for a thousand years. And I think we looked at 2 Kings chapter 5 um, and Romans chapter 12, I think it was verses 9 through 13, for what it means for us to bind Satan. If you think you have an enemy that has flesh and blood and is a, is a person, then the remedy for binding that enemy would be aggressive goodness, according to that message. It's on the website, cclivingwater.net, if you want to listen to it. Aggressive goodness. Goodness. That's how we bind the enemy as it relates to people. As far as binding Satan himself, we never ever take on Satan. Satan has created a, a higher order. He is of the angelic realm. And we are no match for that realm. We are people. We, we cannot fight Satan in our flesh. And, and it's a spiritual battle. And so we must always keep in between us the Lord and anything that would come at us, whether that's people or something of a demonic realm. And so we need to say, Lord Jesus, you handle Satan. You bind Satan. You take care of Satan. And we see that in Jude, that there was a disputing with the body of Moses, and the high-ranking angel, Michael the archangel, would not bring, the Bible says, a railing accusation against Satan, but he would say, the Lord rebuke you. And so we need to be careful this talking to the devil and this binding. I bind you, Satan. What, what? No, no. Jesus, bind Satan. Take care of him. Get him out of my life. May he not affect anything that you want to do for sure in my life. And so we're not communicating with demonic entities or Satan himself. We keep the Lord in between us and Satan. And I believe that's what binding Satan specifically is. It's praying. Lord, help me. Help me in this moment. I, I see something that shouldn't be happening. I don't know if it's of a spiritual nature or what's going on. Lord, can you handle this? Lord, can you please intercede on my behalf? And that's what I believe binding is in this context. Verse 28 through 30. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. So now think about it with me. In John chapter 15, it says, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And so if the Holy Spirit is doing his job in my life and convicting me of sin, showing me that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, and I resist that, then I'm resisting the only way that I can get to heaven. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus speaking says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So there's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that he made on the cross. So the Holy Spirit's ministry is to drive me towards that, to see that sacrifice as on my behalf. 
If I resist that or reject that, then I'm committing the only sin that I can never be forgiven of. There is no other way to heaven. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not that difficult, and we confuse it and convolute it. So many times Christians will think, why? I attributed the work of God to Satan and I was renouncing Jesus and I was kicking him out of my life. And oh my gosh, I live in this horrible guilt. I think I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The fact that you have this conviction and that you feel bad about it proves that you did not commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Somebody who is in the process of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will have an attitude of pride and arrogance to say, I don't need God. I need God for I could do this on my own. Look at my successes are my successes. Do you know my childhood? Do you know my background? Do you know my upbringing? I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need God. That is in the process of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if you get to the end of your life having resisted God, who is by his love and grace trying to draw you and let you know that in your arrogance and in your pride, no, actually you do need God. You need God for everything, and everything that you have is from the hand of God. The fact that you are able to work, the fact that you have done so well is a blessing from God. And to not even acknowledge that, I, I, I'm amazed as I speak and share with individuals who are atheist or agnostic, and oftentimes so very intelligent, extremely articulate as you speak to them, and and. I just, I put my head down and I shake, I shake my head and I just think that intelligence that you have, your ability to articulate language has been given to you by God, the God that you don't even acknowledge. And it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing how deceptive and how subtle Satan is to rise up the pride within somebody's heart to think that they don't need God. And so there is no sin that we can commit that we cannot be forgiven of if we simply ask God for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was, when I was working in Santa Clarita, we had a, uh, one of the drivers for the school district had come to me and said, Do, are, you, are you able to marry people? My daughter wants to get married. And um, so, yeah, you know, I was talking to her and, and said, yeah, we, we need to meet and just have some, some counseling so that, you know, I can make sure they're on the right page and everything. And uh, she said that there was a church that wouldn't marry them because they had committed a sin that they wouldn't, couldn't be forgiven of in their church. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, and so I started to research and look into it, but I didn't know this. There are such things as called venial sins and mortal sins. And apparently the fiancé had committed a mortal sin. And in committing a mortal sin, whether that's murder, adultery, or these, I guess, really big sins, there's a church structure that will not accept or receive them into the fellowship. That is so unbiblical. That is so unbiblical. God's grace covers any and every sin that we can commit. And how dare us even think that my sins are better than your sins because your sins are what, bigger sins? They're all big sins. They all put Jesus on the cross. His blood covers them all. And so there's no such thing as that in the scriptures. Every sin can be forgiven except the pushing away of God 
until you die. So, interesting. Our last section, verses 31 through 35. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered and them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brother. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus, remember in chapter 2, it was the section 18, verses 18 through 22, where Jesus says new wineskins is where new wine needs to go. And um, you don't put an old, a new patch on old cloth because it'll stretch it and rip it and nobody does that. And what we studied last week was Jesus was doing a new work in the new covenant. And you see this new work in this new covenant coming now at the end of chapter 3 where he's saying, I have a new family. And I just find this amazing. Jesus' family did not believe in, in him until the resurrection. It wasn't until after he would rise from the dead and they would be in the upper room, his mother and his brothers, in the upper room waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so at this time in his ministry, he has brothers and sisters who don't believe in him as the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, not only am am I doing a new thing, but I'm creating a new family. And this new family will be the household of God. And so that's interesting. Let's go back to verses 1 through 6. And I want to show you how to identify a religious hypocrite. Identifying a religious hypocrite. We don't want to do this so that we can burn them. Ah, you're a religious hypocrite. We don't want to do that. But we definitely don't want to be the party of a religious hypocrite. And we need to be careful of that. So, identifying religious hypocrites. Four things. Notice verse 2. Religious hypocrites are accusers. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, you and I need to be very careful when we're accusing the brethren. And we do this all the time. I see it all the time. And it's something that we shouldn't be doing. Satan, in one of his names specifically, is called the accuser. And he's the accuser of the brethren. And so when we indict one another, we don't see them as God sees them. God sees us as Christians as forgiven. He calls things into being that don't exist. He changed Peter's name from shifty sand to rock. Would Peter be a rock throughout the ministry of Jesus? No. He would remain shifting sand, but you would watch God turn this shifting guy into an incredible pillar in the body of Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, he would preach and share the gospel, and 3,000 people would give their hearts to Jesus, and he would be an incredible pillar in the body of Christ. And so, number one... Religious hypocrites are accusers. They accuse the brethren. And so let us see people, especially Christians, as God sees them. And let's be careful when we're indicting one another and pointing a finger of accusation. Eyes of faith as we watch people. Number two, in verse four, they won't respond to conviction. Notice verse four, it says, Then he said to them, 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And so number two, they don't respond to conviction. Anytime you're sharing with somebody, in your mind at least, you have to say, Lord, open the eyes of their understanding. Lord, give them ears to hear, eyes to see what you're saying. Because without that conviction, then it's to no avail. They're just words and arguments and people are just going back and forth. So anytime you're sharing with somebody, make sure that you pray that. Lord, open their eyes. Let them see what you're saying behind the scenes. And there's no magic in the words. It's truly by the Spirit of God that is convicting them and revealing uh, what God has for them. So number two, they won't respond to conviction. Number three, they're hard-hearted. Notice number, I'm sorry, verse five. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And so as Jesus looks around, he's grieved. But what is he grieved with and what is he angry with? He's angry and he's grieved at the fact that their hearts are so hard that God is doing something miraculous in their very midst to deliver an individual who has a withered hand, to make him whole, to bless him, to heal him, to do some extraordinary, miraculous right in front of their eyes. But because of their religiosity in their system, Their hearts are so hard that they don't want to be confused with the facts. As Jesus says, if evil is taking place, shouldn't good take place? This is ridiculous. This is just so commonsensical. And their common sense, because of the hardness of their hearts, wouldn't even click in. So number three, they're hard-hearted. And finally, number four, notice they're destructive in verse six. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Because of their system and because Jesus didn't line up and match with their tradition is what it comes down to. When we get into chapter 6, I believe it is, Jesus is going to give an entire account of their tradition blinding them from the ability to see God. And so we need to be very careful, again, as Christians, to ask ourselves, why do we do this? Why do we do it like this? Is this biblical or is this just something we've done? Is this just a tradition that we've brought in? And the tradition and the grace of God and the love of God is lost oftentimes in the traditions. Now, we can have great traditions that are rooted in biblical things and godly things, but I just, I watch And I watch the inconsistencies oftentimes in the lives of Christians. They'll celebrate one holiday, but they won't celebrate another holiday because that holiday, for whatever reason, has some connotation or some idea of being rooted in something wicked or evil. But aren't they all? (laughs) Didn't they all come from pagan Babylon? And I mean, if you really study them and look into them, they're all whack. And so if we could redeem them somehow, then fantastic. Is Christmas really Christmas anymore? Is it the birth of Jesus? We know studying the scriptures, Jesus was probably born somewhere around August during the harvest. But yet, you know, Constantine, 3rd century AD, took it and just made all these pagan uh, holidays Christian. He just threw a Christian name on them. All the holidays are whack and pagan. And so, I don't know, I have strong opinions about this. I have my beliefs as I've been a Christian. I've always been kind of on the odd man out. Again, I'll look at things like music and um, have Christians will will just 
put it down and say that it's, it's wretched, miserable, and horrible, and no, you can't, and yet I watch them watch secular television all day, and so their entertainment choices are inconsistent. And, and what we end up doing is we become religious hypocrites because we have these inconsistencies in our walk. Let's be careful with that. And let's first recognize that I'm just trying to struggle to figure it out myself, so I ain't got time to be judging you. And I think that's where it lies. Stop judging. Let people figure out their walks with the Lord. Let the Lord grow them up in the things of God. Give them space and room to grow in the things of God. We always want to be slamming others. And I think it's that elementary, junior high school bullying procedure where we feel inferior and if we can just push other people down, then somehow we feel better about ourselves. To me, that's whack. That's just wrong. Let people work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Let the Holy Spirit convict them of what he's growing them up in. There are clear sins in the Bible. There are clear things that are black and white. We don't even need to argue those things. And those aren't the things that I'm talking about. Somebody's getting drunk, they have no business getting drunk. Somebody's doing drugs, you have no business doing drugs. Somebody's having sex outside of marriage, that's wrong. That's condemned in the scriptures. And those aren't the things that I'm talking about. I'm talking about things that God is growing up, and they're called convictions. Let each individual develop their own convictions about what God is growing them up in. And and, and just, there's grace for everybody in that. And so these people, the fourth thing, these religious hypocrites, they were destructive, and they were looking to destroy Jesus. Contrast that to the man, number one, the man was unnamed. He was an unnamed man. We don't even have a name here, but this unnamed man, God knew who he was. God knew what his needs were. Number two, in the place, he was in the place where God could reach him. He was in church. He was at the synagogue. And so even though the system wasn't perfect, even though um, there were some things that weren't right, yet he was sitting there saying, you know what? My best chances of hearing from God are probably in the house of God. So I'm going to go. It's not a perfect system. Uh, yeah, there's some things that need to be fixed and, and whatever, but I want to hear from God, and I think God can help me. So he was in the right place. And then finally, number three, and this is what we're going to end on. He had enough faith to obey and experience a miracle. God provides the miracle when our actions meet faith. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But I can't. You don't know my wife. You don't understand. It's just impossible. This is, here's the command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Jesus do? He entered, he, he left his home in glory and he entered into her world and he died there. Only possible with Jesus. Wives, reverence, respect your husbands as unto the Lord. But I can't, he's unrespectable. You don't even understand. It's God's commandment. And the minute that we begin to just say, Lord, I can't, but I know that you can and I'm willing. This is an interesting idea. God will not... God can change your, mind, your heart, but he can't change your mind. God will not change your heart until you change your mind. And so the minute that this individual, and we can see Jesus brings him up front center, and he says, stretch out your hand. I want you to do something that's impossible. At the command, when the guy said, well, I really can't, but Jesus is telling me to, so here I go. I'm going to, whoa, my hand is stretched out. Wow, a miracle, something that I couldn't do, I was able to do. 
if our hearts are simply willing, if we simply want to cooperate and participate with God, we will see miracles. We will see things done that we in and of ourselves cannot do. And it's when that faith and, and obedience are just, they come together and we say, Lord, I've tried. You don't even know. You want me to use wholesome words coming out of our mouth? I've tried that all my life. Lord, what do I do? Give me your tongue. Obey and watch me speak through you and convict you when I need to. And so just a neat picture for us that we would take God at his word. God is calling us to walk by faith, to trust him, to take him at his word and let him have his way in our lives and in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the examples of these individuals that we have in scripture. And Lord, just taking a note, um, how you deal with them. Lord, we recognize that we don't want to be in the religious hypocrite community. But Lord, I pray that we would be gracious with others as you are gracious with them. I pray that we would desire, Lord, to be lights as on a hilltop, giving you glory for the good works that are being able to be produced out of our lives. Not for the attention and the show of individuals, Lord, like the religious hypocrites. And so help us, Lord. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of your word. Help us to not accuse one another, but to be encouraging to hold back that wicked tongue, Lord, that sharp tongue that we can have and recognize, Lord, that you see things that we don't see. And to your children, Lord, we shouldn't bring accusations. That is what the enemy does. So, Lord, for all of these things, we just hold them up to you and pray that you would help us. Grow our faith, Lord. Continue to develop the things of faith that are within us and that we would desire, Lord, just to cooperate with you in the work of ministry. So thank you for your word and continue, Father, just to show yourself strong to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand for this last song. If there's a need for prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Prayer room is open.